1: Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, uh, we are very fortunate to have with us an expert on uh, political change and democratic activism, especially among young people in Latin America. We are joined uh, by a new friend who I had the opportunity to work with on a large international model UN conference. Uh, This is Dr. Andres Gonzalez. Uh, He's a political scientist based in uh, Quito, Ecuador. He's speaking to us from Quito today. He obtained his PhD in political science and international relations from one of my favorite universities in Europe, uh, where I also had the opportunity to spend some time, Ludwigs Maximilians Universität in Munich and he has taught in several universities and high schools in Germany and Ecuador. He's absolutely fluent in English, German, and Spanish, as well as other languages, I'm sure, uh, putting me to shame with my broken German and broken French and other things. Uh, he's currently president and academic director of a really interesting, outstanding institution. I encourage people to look up their website. It is called Politicum. Um, and we will also have the website on our website. They're an independent education corporation focused on citizenship and political education, exactly what we're interested in every week on our podcast, uh, for students of all levels and multi-languages and multiple cultural backgrounds. Uh, Andres is also the author of a book, Governance for the 21st Century, The Fight Against Corruption in Latin America. Uh, Andres, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you for the invitation, Jeremy and Zach. I'm very pleased to join you from the middle of the world.
1: From the middle of the world, yes. (laughs) Zachary, uh, what is the title of your poem today?
0: In the Aftermath.
1: In the Aftermath, okay, well, let's hear it.
0: In the aftermath, they saw the flags turn into dollar signs and battle songs fold into jingles and cigarette ads. Not hope, but a cynical greed, not hate, but a shadowy sort of apathy. And now they are seeing their salt flats become factories, their oceans overflowing, their rivers purple, on good days brown. In the backwoods dreaming, maybe in a slum or a flavela singing, perhaps sitting on a bus in a cold rain, whistling in the aftermath of a hurricane. There is something recaptured, reborn, a true hope, a real hate, no longer just a blank stare. The poet escaping the dictator on horseback looks back at his pursuers and sees in them the weight of history, not insurmountable, but difficult, not impersonal, but difficult. Now in the halls hallowed, hollowed out like pumpkins as if by cannonball, they have dared to see the sort of future no one else can. It is seeping out of the mountains. It makes its way through the hills, jungles, and cities like a silent fog, not sinister, but
1: disconcerting. That's a very moving poem, Zachary, and I love the wow. reference.
2: Yeah. Congratulations on that. Very full of sentiment.
1: Thank you. What is your poem about, Zachary?
0: Well, my poem is really about uh, trying to understand uh, the moment that young people face in Latin America today. Um, Obviously, it's not something I'm very closely acquainted with, but I tried to connect it sort of to to my experience as a young person and um, to this sense of history that is both comforting and hopeful, but also also uh,
1: deeply suffocating and, and problematic. Yes, yes. Uh, Andres, I think that's such a g- good place to start our conversation. Um, how have you seen activism among young people, those who you now teach and mentor? How is it different from when you were uh, a young man, not that long ago? <laughs>
2: no, yes, actually a, a long time ago. But I would say there are certain Parallels and there are certain things that are different. Um, I think one of the major changes so far is that social media and technology have become the fueling element of protest. I remember that the Prime Minister of the UK, when he referred to the events in Egypt when they overthrew um, uh, Hosni Mubarak, he called it not a coup d'etat, but a coup de text Hmm. because the people started to get together via text messages. They started to organize via text messages. And I thought of that concept being very interesting because I see that the change that we have right now is that young people are using the technology to get informed, but also to organize. That is a double-edged sword because, of course, you want, in a democracy, of course, political participation. You want people to join political institutions, political organizations, or to create something. But the organization of protest happens without any, any control whatsoever from any state institution, meaning that tomorrow there could be, you know, protest or a strike, and no one from the government will know until it happens. Right. You know? Right. And so I think that's that's one thing that has changed. Now, the parallel that I want to make for when I was a teenager is that people are not young people, are not necessarily familiar and friendly with the term politics. Yes. And and, and let me tell you my my experience with political science. I wanted to be a journalist when I started college or university in Munich. And then I had to take political science as a minor. It was an obligatory minor. And I thought that's not going to work because I am not interested in politics. I hate politics because at that time here in Ecuador, politics were very violent in terms of, you know, the classical scene of politicians punching each other's faces in Congress, Mm. right? Mm. And I thought, this is not going to work. I went to my first lecture on political science, and I fell in love. And I said, what is this world? Mm. And then, ever since then, my love affair with political science and with political issues and bringing them to young people has been ongoing. It's like a long lasting marriage. But the problem is that we see a disenchantment of young people because they always feel betrayed. And that has not changed in the last, let's say 30 years here in Latin America, at least. They feel betrayed by the political establishment, not only because of promises not being fulfilled, but rather by not allowing access to young people, to express themselves, to participate, and to generate a change.
0: How do you think uh, the past uh, year or so of pandemic and uh, uh, democratic chaos, if you will, has changed how young people are involved in politics?
2: I think the pandemic triggered a couple of things that were latent. They were hiding under the surface, and then all of a sudden they exploded. And take a look at what happened in Colombia last year. Young people took the streets in the main cities, Bogotá, Medellín, Cali, and they were protesting because of a lot of things that were issues before the pandemic, but got a lot worse during the pandemic. The economic inequality, for example. I don't see Latin America as necessarily a poor region. It's an unequal region. It's, it's unequally distributed. And the problem here was that those problems became intolerable, unbearable, unmanageable for young people who, you know, didn't have a job, who did not have a perspective. What's going to happen after the pandemic if I studied, I don't know, tourism, and there's no more tourism in the future because the pandemic closed everything um, down? That triggered the people... The young people to go out on the street and say to the government, we need something new, or we need something effective for that matter, because the inequality, and especially in Latin America, became wider as the pandemic struck. Lots of people lost their jobs. Lots of people who had very good jobs, you know, lost them. I I take only the example of pilots, pilots who flew the whole time they were grounded and they had to fly once a month, a pilot who flew normally, you know, almost every day. And they had to turn and see what alternatives there were. And there weren't many alternatives. And so they went out to the street and they protested because of a disenchantment with governments who did not act as quickly as they should have, especially after or during the pandemic.
1: Uh, Traditionally, Andres, at least from the United States point of view, when we've studied uh, social activism and protest movements in Latin America for the last half century, there's been an emphasis on the role of a Marxist tradition and the influence of uh, Fidel Castro, for example, uh, throughout the region. Uh, Obviously, we're in a different moment now. Mm -hmm. Is there a guiding ideology? Is there some common framework that these protesters are appealing to?
2: I don't think there are real contents, political contents, like, for example, in the 1960s, 1970s, the big figures of the left in Latin America turned out to be uh, more right than those who claim to be from the right side. And I give you the example of our former, former president, Rafael Correa, who claimed to be a leftist, but his government was a government of... Companies of private companies of dealings with you know international investors, and so the big new left in Latin America could have been a parody of Saturday Night Live. How? Because it was neither new nor it was left. <laughs> you know, and you probably, Jeremy, maybe Zach not, doesn't know who I refer to, but you probably remember the sketches in the nineteen nineties about those terms you know yes of course Um, it was it was uh, quite uh, Mike Myers you know And, and, and he made these parodies and it was amazing because they proclaimed at the early 2000s the new socialism in Latin America and it wasn't any of that you take a look at all the countries I think politics are cyclical You know, there's left and right, left and right the whole time, you know, but I think there are no more of these figures of the left, not even Maduro in Venezuela, not even the ousted Morales in Bolivia. There is no real guidance rather than say, let's go against the government. But going against the government doesn't have this impetus of an ideology. It's more of a pragmatism.
1: And and do you think that's good or bad?
2: I think that is bad, because they it's it's a matter of overthrowing whoever is in 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 power. And there have been here in Ecuador two years ago, pre-pandemic. Well, actually, three years ago, twenty nineteen, end of twenty nineteen, October, there was a big uprising because the government, who claimed actually to be more left than right cut down the subsidies or cut out the subsidies of uh, fossil fuels. And people went out to the streets. Many organizations went out to the street, the good organizations and the bad organizations. And they forced the uh, president, President Lenny Moreno, to back up, back off, I'm sorry. They forced President Moreno to back off, and he declared the, um, the decree or the law that he proclaimed as not valid he took it back why did he take it back because these people went out and literally burned down the city and when i say burn down the city there is you can google it um and there's you know Ecuador protest 2019 people went out to the street to burn down government buildings And it was incredible. We've never seen something like that. But there was an amalgamation of organizations. So young people went out to protest, yes. But also extreme groups that had nothing to do with the protest who wanted to just oust the government. Then the indigenous movement took the streets. And that is, in Latin American countries, a very sensitive issue. Because in the history of Latin America these groups have always traditionally been neglected by politics, by history, by society, and so they took the streets. And it was incredible. On the one hand, you could say, yes, it was the right thing to do to take the streets and fight for, you know, justice, equality, but the amount of violence that was generated, it was confused. They they, they blamed several groups amongst them, the indigenous people for the burning down of Quito, and they marched on or through neighborhoods who had nothing, absolutely never seen something like that. And what do I mean by this? The protests are always in the center where the government building is, okay? Mm -hmm. So all the protests were in the historical center of Quito, but this time they marched everywhere. They, They came very close to where I live, where there's nothing, no government buildings, it's a residential area, and they marched. And that was something that we've never seen before. Um, The airport closed for several days. I was stuck in Lima for three days trying to come back here. And that, for, for me, it was a bad thing that so much violence was generated. And that, of course, made the protest turn into something bad rather than into something good. And until now, you know, the the nobody knows who started the violence. So I think young people become disenchanted because of that. Because they take it out on the streets, but then there's you know the clashes with the police and then afterwards nothing happens. So the the, the product of the, the protests in Ecuador, in Chile, in Colombia, even in Venezuela have not given the changes that people need. Or even that you mentioned um, Cuba. There was a massive movement a couple of months ago. Nothing has happened. So the young people see that disenchantment and that is the big problem. That is why the continuous violence happens in several countries. It's not only us, it's everywhere.
0: You're certainly right that there has been a lot of violence involved in these political movements, but uh, a lot of that violence too has come from governments. Why is it that governments have failed to respond effectively with effective political messages or other tools to, to address some of these concerns?
2: I think the problem of all the governments that face violent protest is, I would say, the progressive use of force because at first you don't say anything, you let them protest and as long as they're peaceful, it's fine, but then it only takes one stone to fall on uh, on a helmet of a cop and then the whole thing explodes. Now, the problem in, uh, in, in Colombia, in Chile, in Ecuador, in other countries is that there is a lack of education, in training in the police forces on how to act, on how to you know make their move without engaging in violence, and that's one of the biggest problems of our, of our police force here. It's young men and women who have no training and they have no equipment, and they have to face a mob of people with stones and 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 and, and, and sticks and everything. How do you do that? And so I think that there were parallels in, in many countries of Latin America where the, the, the police forces say, hey, don't blame us. We're, we're here actually to protect you, actually. But then it was impossible to resist or impossible not to handle when you have such an angry mob. And, and it's always something that I tell my students all the time at Politico is imagine you are the president and people are burning down your government buildings would you use violence immediately would you wait would you not what would you do and it's incredibly striking to me that many young people say if i was sitting on the chair of the president i would send i would send everyone to to you know turn down the strikes or whatever and that worries me because i don't believe that violence is the solution but it worries me because that triggers some attitudes of young people towards uh, disagreements that is very dangerous. Because if one of these kids turns out to be the president in 20 years, and he's not going to doubt to send police forces to protesters, uh, then we have a problem.
1: Right. Is, is there a, a need for more of an ideologically coherent philosophy? behind the demands for reform. What you've described are reactions to mistreatment, reactions to deprivation, all of which sound reasonable and positions that many of us can sympathize with. Uh, Obviously, one wouldn't sympathize with the use of violence, but is the absence of an alternative philosophy, is that a real challenge today for groups that are trying to change their governments and change the way people operate?
2: Absolutely. I think there is a lack of knowledge about politics. There is a lack of interest about politics. In my classes, I take students who don't know what their rights are, where their rights are embedded, why is it important to vote, why is it important to have information before you vote. And so people just protest for the sake of protesting. And people have this, once again, sense of immediateness. So what they want... It's not the right to win or the left to win. They want a better minimum wage. They want jobs. They want uh, fuels not to go higher. You know. So there's a pragmatism right there. There's no. I, I don't see and I don't think that many of the people, the protests, especially the young people. Are ideologically or philosophically guided. They're guided because out of need, out of need. They're guided because they want an immediate change that will better their lives. Now, the Chilean case presents a very interesting case because now we have a leftist leader, a very young one, you know, he's still in his 30s, and many people see the hope and here's the thing what i think it's very 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 difficult the government in chile is now full of the people who went out on the streets right so those people who were the leaders of younger or, uh, youth organizations are now taking places in ministries etc 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 the big question here how are they going to react to protesters they're now the government, right? right? right. So they are now, in, in the eyes of many people, they're now the bad guys. And they turn, you know, from the street to the palace. How is that going to go? So Chile, for me, is a country in which we have to be very observant because of the nature of the government and because the new president has announced that he's, you know, complete leftist, etc., etc. But at the end... At the end, I believe countries in Latin America are extremely pr- pragmatic. Best example right now, our president, uh, Guillermo Lasso went to China. And he went to China to negotiate the terms of the huge amount of loans that we have with China. He doesn't care about any philosophical or any political matters. Of course, he did not mention touchy issues such as human rights or something, because that's that's a no-go when you negotiate with such a big country. That's a topic that they don't want to touch, and that's fine. But you see, it's pragmatism. Our president is seen as a right-wing uh, conservative president, and he didn't bother to go to China to negotiate. Why? Because we sold, unfortunately, our oil reserves too early to the Chinese, and now we have to negotiate.
1: Wow. Wow. So uh, in your analysis, then, uh, what we're confronted with are a series of problems of governance, which in some ways are classic political science problems, problems with a long history. And we have almost just a cyclical action and reaction occurring Mm -hmm. in our societies. How do we break out of that?
2: I think the breaking out of that has to do with the economy. I believe that whoever government in the region manages to find a way to improve the economic situation of the people, to get rid of the inequality, to give young people a chance to thrive, to give young people the chance for a job, not only a job uh, flipping burgers, but a promising job, saying you're going to flip burgers for a year, but then things are going to change for you. You're going to become, I don't know, store manager or whatever. That is what will bring a change. And, and and I'm not much of an economist because I'm a political scientist, but I have seen that the empty promises of many leaders are leading to this cycle of, of, of violence and to the cycle of disenchantment. So for example, our government here in Ecuador is saying we are the government of togetherness, meaning In Spanish, el gobierno del encuentro, okay, where people meet and get together. But right now, in some areas, the government is doing completely the opposite. So they're calling it the government of of not togetherness, of the desencuentro in Spanish. And there's many voices who say, "Yeah, well, he's doing on one or on a couple of fronts. He's doing the right thing." And I think uh, people have to uh, also support the government. But in other areas, people don't see that change. People don't see the immediate changes. And we, the middle class, a couple of weeks ago, had to face with higher taxes because he's the it's the only way for the government to, you know, manage the very delicate economic situation. So my answer is definitely that the economy has to be managed by people who know, by people who, despite any economic ideologies, do the right thing for the countries.
1: Uh, Of course, one of the challenges in Latin America, though, Andres, historically has been that the technocrats who run the economy are often out of touch with the people, and something I know you've written quite a bit on, problems of corruption, yes? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. There is no development without tackling the issue of corruption. So in a country where the pizza arrives before the police and you can actually not necessarily spend your money in hiring a lawyer where you can buy a judge, then you have a big problem. Then You have a very, very big problem. And I'm not taking that phrase... To my own authorship, it was, um, I think he was a Nigerian colleague of mine who said in the African system, you don't necessarily employ lawyers. You actually get your money together to buy uh, judges. And the problem in Latin America is the same because corruption is one of the biggest, biggest impediments for development. There was a time here in Ecuador where out of every dollar that was received in foreign aid, 60 cents went to corruption and 40 cents only came to the right hands. So then you have the problem of how to deal with that because I always say in my class, corruption is like terrorism is like stupidity. Those three problems you cannot erase from the world and you cannot necessarily tackle it down properly under one solution. So I tell my students, what do you do with stupid people? And then they say, well, you have to define who is stupid, right? And any social scientist will tell you, well, that's a matter of perspective. So corruption is the same. And then you say, all right, is there a definition for corruption? You can say the abuse of public power for private gain. That's the most use definition, but then if you are a social scientist, then you take a look at the definition and you see it's flawed because it's not always the abuse of public power. It's also the abuse of private power. And then you get into these discussions and every government, at least here in Ecuador and in other countries as well, in the region have promised every time they say we will take down on the issue of corruption, we will take those down who accept bribes. We accept. Uh, we will take measures, structural measures, to tackle it down. But the, it's a very difficult uh, problem to tackle down because of the different, the different ramifications it has. It was back in the 1970s where there's a whole bunch of literature of economists, especially who say, "What's the problem with corruption? Everything runs," you know, and and it's the Greece... Uh, that oils the machine right right, right. and yes. the problem is that it's not right so there's a whole um, generation of political scientists who claim no that's not okay but then the issue of corruption as a de- as a as a impediment for development is what has the the, the region and all of the countries and I think all of the countries in, in, in the region have same the same Challenges when it comes to corruption, and take a look at the Corruption uh, Perceptions Index from Transparency International, yes, yes. and you see all the Latin American countries in the in the in the lesser good half because of the mismanagement of governments.
1: Do you think that young activists today understand this problem, and have they? Is there a chance they will be less susceptible to the I, corruption?
2: I think it's a matter of information. I think if people, if young people, were to engage in dialogues, in real dialogues about the issues of countries, you would create, you would educate, you would generate a very solid group of people, a new generation that will see these things clear. But if someone rather reads about what happened during the Super Bowl in the halftime show, than reading why is the president you know being accused of X Y in X country, then we do have a problem, and I like for example stars and famous people who. Uh, b- motivate young people to engage in causes. And I think one of the um, recent examples has been Leonardo DiCaprio with this whole environmentalism thing and claiming that the Galapagos is, a, is, is something that we should take care about and people follow that. So I think the problem of young people is that they don't get informed, that they don't have the spaces to talk about these things because then we have a bigger problem. The schools, the high schools don't allow these spaces because they lack the time and the resources. They rather teach uh, chemistry, they rather teach math, which are fundamental, of course, but we used to have a space in our curriculum where you used to talk about national issues, uh, even global issues, and not all the schools have that anymore. So what I think is young people need the spaces to speak, to give their thoughts, that's one of the reasons, actually, what we created Politicum to give those students the tools to debate, to understand, and even to read the paper. I have a student who sends me—you um, would expect students to send you questions. He sends me articles from the newspaper in Germany that he finds interesting, and that's for me—that's a—that's a win. Because he reads the newspaper in German and says, oh, I find this one interesting. I find this one interesting. What do you think about this one? And that is what we need to generate. If we're going to have a true activism, then it has to be informed. It has to be based on the interest of young people.
1: That's so well said and i think it's universal uh zachary what do you think i mean is is this vision of a more informed public sphere that uh andres is is articulating and he's drawing on a a large political science literature of course on this is an informed public sphere something you see developing among young people? And do you see it having the kinds of international dimensions that Andres is talking about with I know you, you also read German, Zachary, and reading other languages and seeing the news the news from other points of view. What what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I, I do think that it's becoming much more international, and I think that that we are seeing a renewed interest in 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 pragmatic local issues and 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 problem solving that has real local impacts, but is done in a global intellectual community. And I think that. That's really been crystallized uh, by by COVID, because in in a world of pandemic, you can't simply look to the solutions at home. You have to look abroad as well. But you also have to come up with solutions and policies that that actually solve the problems and and keep people out of the hospitals and and keep people fed. And I think that. As much as COVID has, has, has brought suffering to so many, it's also opened the door for these kinds of opportunities and these kinds of, of, of dialogues about these issues.
1: I, I, I think that's a very informed and optimistic point of view. Uh, yeah. Andres, our, 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 yeah, I was going to ask you to react to that, please.
2: Uh, my reaction to that is actually a story that happened a month ago in our class, Politicum for Universities, that I teach for German students. I teach from the middle of the world and they are all in Europe. And we made one exercise, and Zach, Zach, you will find this um, interesting. I told them, find out the news about the crisis in Ukraine, okay? Very easy task. But I said to them, from a local newspaper, one of the students was in Turkey, the other one was in Italy, The other one was in the Netherlands. Only one was in Germany. The other one was in Spain. They went to the local news and we saw five different versions of the Ukraine conflict. And it was amazing. It was incredible. We all did it over Zoom. And my exercise aimed at saying, COVID has vanished the borders of information, has ban or has, yeah, vanished once again the borders of how we can reach people. I teach a class with people that are in five different countries and I don't even have to leave my desk. And that's something that did not happen before the pandemic. And the sad thing about it is that we did have the technology for that. We just didn't use it. So if you wanted to have an international class, you would actually have to host them in some place and now you don't have to do it. So we took a look at five different versions of the Ukraine conflict, and it was incredible. So I believe that some of the things that you said are uh, evolving, and we should not stop carrying out the message internationally. We should not see COVID as this pandemic that only brought bad things. I believe, and I think, um, Jeremy, when we opened the Model UN uh, two weeks ago, You saw people from different places. You saw kids who stood up until or were up until midnight in Europe, right? And I think the pandemic has given us the virtuality that for many people is a burden. I understand. But for some that are becoming not the few, but the many, it's a tool of inclusion. It's a tool of saying, hey, I can teach you. Of course. Where are you? I am in... I don't know Mongolia, and do you have internet? Yes. Okay, then I can teach you. Of course, my limitation is when they don't have internet. Yes, absolutely. That is a you know great point. But now I see a lot of people, Zach. I don't know in in your age uh, if uh, people are like that. But my teenagers here, whenever they come to a I don't know I don't know reunion or a house they don't ask where the bathroom is. They ask you for the Wi-Fi yes. password. <laughs> it's, and it's, it's so amazing, true. you know? It's so true. And, and, and back in the day where <laughs> Jeremy and I used to go to reunions or parties, you used to say, you know, can you tell me where the bathroom is or can, can I help you with something? The, the, the kids are very specific. And they say, I need the password because you know i need to be connected and i think the idea of of, of, of covid being um a, a you know a point 0 uh, on mankind so to speak in terms of we all started to uh, we all needed to start from scratch is a valid point but it's a valid point for inclusion and i want to finish this this part of the inclusion not only the kids that are far away but also kids that might be next door but have some issue being in front of an audience, being in front of their peers. I've had a lot of students at Politico who suffered from bullying, for example, mm. and who did not, you know, were not able to talk about politics because they said, oh, there goes the nerd again. But now they're in their home, in a safe place, you know? And they don't have any any censorship whatsoever by teachers or peers or whatever. They're there and they're safe. And that's the beauty of the virtuality. And when it comes to teaching politics, I think it's very amazing that I can teach a class to wherever wants it in the world, and I don't have to leave my desk. Yes. Yes.
1: I, I think you've given us a tour de force and a visionary description, Andres, of how the challenges of our world also open up certain opportunities for young activists, uh, not just reacting to the challenges of their moment, but also articulating and building connections that didn't exist before. And, and I love your vision of a transnational dialogue among young people uh Mm -hmm. really articulating alternatives to the moment that we that we live in today Uh, i hope all of our listeners i know all of our listeners will take some inspiration uh from that and the very fact that we could have you on this podcast from ecuador describing your experiences on multiple continents from your Mm -hmm. desk is uh, that's so empowering it was unthinkable andres for you and i uh, to do this, even a decade ago, and and mm-hmm. there is such possibility in that. So I thank you for your optimism, your international point of view, and your commitment. I think to what's what's most important for a vibrant uh, public sphere. It's, it's yeah, really- thank you, and, and and I believe that you know if you are going to use virtuality to educate,
2: it's up to the teachers and educators to make it work. Yes. I think I think yes of course that the problems of not being live but as you said how we, would we have had met <laughs> uh, if not through these virtuality and now you know if we stay in touch things are going to be easier for you to join for example one of our classes or for me to come back to the podcast or to your classroom Absolutely. without the burden of traveling which makes it even more environmentally friendly. And that's also something that I saw in the young people that I interviewed and I said, why do you want to do this? And they said, I don't have to use fuel to do anything to move around. Precisely,
1: precisely. And
2: and that is the future. I think that is the
1: future. I think you're absolutely right, and, and it has been a real pleasure to speak with you. I know we will remain friends and collaborators, and I Thank look you. forward to continuing to learn from you and to see your impact on the ground in Ecuador and, and elsewhere. Thank you again, Andres. Thank you. Thank you to both, to
2: Jeremy and to Zach, for this wonderful idea. I I, I didn't know about the poem, and I the very first thing that came to my mind was you two's. Uh, song Sunday Bloody Sunday, and you know a protest song, and and I thought of the poem as a, as the beginning of the podcast as a great idea. So keep it up, and uh, we'll see or we'll hear each other in the next episode.
1: That is correct. Zachary, thank you. And, and did you have U2's um, Sunday Bloody Sunday in <laughs> mind? Unfortunately not, but it's certainly one of my favorite songs. There we go. Thank yes. you, Zachary, for your poem. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy.